This morning we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to meet me there in the text. We'll be there momentarily. Um, just a reminder that we will participate in communion after the sermon, uh, like we did last month. Um, and so if you have not uh, grabbed one of those communion cups out in the hallway, please uh, feel free to do so uh, before we get to that um, so that you can participate with us. Uh, for those of you who are new to FAC, maybe unfamiliar with uh, who we are, uh, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, it's always a joy uh, to be with you, and I am always eager to meet new people. Uh, and so I'd encourage you to stop by and say hello after the service. Uh, and I can even do you one better this morning uh, than that, because this, mor- this afternoon after service at 1230, we're going to be hosting a welcome lunch. Uh, and uh, if you are new to FAC, I want to extend that invitation to you to join us uh, at lunch. Even if you didn't register, as Pastor Chen mentioned earlier, um, feel free to come. It's a free lunch. The purpose of it is really to just give you an opportunity to connect with other new people. Uh, several of our staff members will be there as well, and some of our elders will be there as well. And so um, please feel free to come. Um, no specific agenda other than we just want to get to know you, and we want to give you the opportunity to know us And so please uh, take us up on that offer of a a free lunch. Um, As an add-on to that, uh, a reminder to you that next Sunday we begin our Intro to FAC course, which is also very good for new people who are unfamiliar with us. Um, Also, if you have considered membership, formal official membership here at FAC, uh, the Intro to FAC course is required. And um, so mark your calendars. Once again, that starts next Sunday uh, during second service. You can register for that or ask any questions that you might have at the hub after service. We'd encourage you to be uh, part of that as well. Um, This morning, it's an exciting Sunday uh, because we're going to share today the the outcome and the culmination of our envisioning process that we've been talking about for quite some time, longer than you might realize. And uh, we hope even in the coming weeks to paint a picture of what God has in store uh, for the future of us as a church, uh, as an FAC, as a local church body. Um, and so as we begin, um, we're excited uh, to, to share, but I do want to open our time in prayer. And so would you pray with me? Dear Father, your word says that the heart of man plans his way, uh, but the Lord establishes his steps. And as we look toward the future and plan our way diligently and carefully and prayerfully, I would ask that would, uh, it would align with what you would have for us um, and uh, as a church and that you would establish our steps. Give us direction, Lord, as we turn to you for guidance, wisdom, knowledge, and holiness. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you bear much fruit through the work of the faithful hands here at FAC. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We will uh, get to our passage in a short minute, um, so go ahead and just put a bookmark in there for now, uh, and throw your finger in there. Before we read, um, though, and uh, before we even share our new vision statement, I feel the need to give you a little bit of a history uh, here, uh, recent history of just kind of what has brought us to this point, um, and um, I think it'll be helpful. Three years ago, exactly, uh, in the beginning of 2019, FAC was in the middle of a pretty major transition um, as we were searching for a new lead pastor. 
Uh, it started in February of 2019 where we were transitioning. And uh, during that transition, there were a lot of hard conversations um, with elders, with staff members, with congregants. And, and it had become very evident through many interactions um, b- between all of us um, that it felt like the church had lacked a sense of identity, uh, lacked a sense of direction. And um, th- don't get me wrong, we did a lot of good things, uh, impactful things, important things, um, but we didn't do really a lot of intentional things. Uh, th- that was the, kind of the overall sentiment um, uh, during that particular transition is that we, we, we weren't really sure who we were. And, and so we, as transitions tend to do, started asking those questions, who are we? What is our identity? Uh, And this was a problem that certainly needed to be addressed, but nothing was going to happen until we filled the lead pastor um, position. And so we fast forward to July of that year. Um, The the elders uh, called me to fill that next role. I'm not sure why they thought uh, giving the youth pastor the pulpit was a good idea, um, but they did it nonetheless. And uh, I I accepted the position uh, somewhat reluctantly, uh, to be honest with you, it was a great matter of prayer uh, in, in my own life and in my family's uh, life, um, but we, we decided to accept at that point uh, and counted it as a um, direction of the Lord. Um, once I filled that spot, I wanted to take the first six months on the job just to get my head above water, uh, just to let the dust settle a little bit and, and learn the ropes, if you will, of being a lead pastor rather than uh, a youth pastor. And 2019, up until that point, had really been the craziest uh, year of my life. And, and so we weren't really going to start a vision casting process, if you will, until the dust had settled uh, from this transition. And if you asked me, I would say that the dust settled from that particular uh, transition right around a year later in January of 2020. Uh, and, and that's when I introduced this idea formally to our board of elders of uh, casting new vision and perhaps even developing a new uh, vision statement. Obviously, you know where the story goes from here. Uh, As COVID just shut everything down in in March, just two months after I had introduced this uh, uh, idea to the elders. And uh, we ended up tabling the discussion on a formal basis. There was still a lot of informal discussion, uh, but we didn't really seriously pick it back up until the end of 2020, really the fall. Now that brings us to the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. I will be the first to raise my hand uh, in a room and tell you that I don't know what I'm doing, um, which is more often than you might think uh, that I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, it was no different in this process, right? I had realized in my youth and in my ignorance, I had never taken a church through a vision casting process before. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, so as we spoke with the elders, we determined that we needed some extra help, outside help from somebody that uh, had done it before. And at that point, by happenstance, Unrelated to the process altogether, we were introduced through our denomination's district to an outside ministry called Flourish Coaching that actually had what they called an envisioning process. Uh, And so so through several meetings and a lot of prayer, um, we decided as a church to um, go through Flourish's envisioning process. And uh, that took about six months through their guidance and through the blessing of our board of elders, we actually enlisted the help of um, eight congregants to work as what we called the envisioning team um, to, to work through this process. And uh, Flourish was, 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 um, 
was very adamant that they needed to be congregants, uh, right? And uh, because this didn't need to be Pastor Mike's vision, this didn't need to be the Board of Elders' vision, this needed to be FAC's vision as a body. And so um, that envisioning team, they, they invested many, many hours of work over the course of six months to, uh, to this process. And, and I wanted to thank them personally for their efforts uh, and frankly, they deserve some recognition. I'm not sure. You've heard me mention the envisioning team from the platform before and the work that they were putting in and the work that we uh, put out to the congregation a little bit. I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned them by name individually. And so if I haven't, the time is right now. Uh, just so you know, uh, they, they deserve to be known. And, and those who served on that team in no particular order, uh, it was uh, Dan Barnett, uh, Jeff Lynch, Judy Inman, Wes Palmer, Gwen Smith, Mike McCullough, and Chris Gross, uh, and myself. Um, If you see them, please uh, be sure to thank them for all of their hard work Um, because they have put in, they went above and beyond really my own expectations and really carried uh, the lion's share of work through this process and uh, could not have done it without them. I was very thankful for their hearts and uh, their minds as well and the gifting that they were given in this. Um, to, to this process. I share all of that history with you so you, that you know that this was not a light ordeal, right? That uh, there have been countless discussions and countless prayers and countless hours of work devoted to this process and we've taken it very seriously every single step of the way looking to discern what God would have for us as a church. Um, that's how we got where we are today. Uh, but I also want you to understand why, right? Why vision cast at all? in the context of a local church. There's an illustration that I've used in the past that's helpful here. Every local church functions as a light in some regard. And some churches function like a little 60-watt light bulb, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with it. It does what it's supposed to do. Its effectiveness, however, only lights up a very small room because the light is just kind of scattered about in every which way. Uh, and it's not concentrated in one direction. We would say that this is a church that does nice things. They, they do good things. They're not doing anything where you would look at them and say, that's not a church. They're not a legitimate church. No, they're, they're a church. They're a legitimate church, but their effectiveness really doesn't travel very far. It doesn't travel very far beyond those who are already involved in the church. It's a 60-watt light bulb. However, a church that has direction that has vision, makes decisions intentionally of what they will do and also what they will not do. And they don't function like a 60-watt light bulb. They function much more like a laser. And what more is a laser than a light that is so concentrated in one direction that it can actually cut through steel? And so our, our hope and desire in casting vision is to attempt to move from that 60-watt light bulb, right, that is rather directionless, and move to being that of a laser that concentrates its light for maximum effectiveness. We hope that this vision is really a gate through which we will make many ministry decisions. We're putting a stake in the ground, and we're saying this is who we are. This is what we have come to be, and this is what we strive for. 
And so while we cross the finish line on this, what we would call envisioning project process, we must realize uh, that it's not a finish line at all. It's actually a starting line for many other endeavors uh, for years and years to come. The work at FAC has just begun. And so with all of that being said, I I do want to share a new vision statement with you. And I I want you to know, I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and praying through this. Uh, We have to know that a vision is much larger than just a pithy little sentence. And a vision is so much more organic than a mechanized, formulated set of words. It's, it's so much more than you can just put down on a page. But I do think that there is value to having an easy-to-read and concise statement. And so just know that while I share this, our vision is so much more. It can be fleshed out so much more uh, than what this is. It can be fleshed out more than this as a whole. Um, but it can be, I would say, summarized in this way. This is our vision. Our our desire here at FAC is to build, equip, and mobilize followers of Jesus so that all nations may know him to God's glory. We want to build, equip, and mobilize followers of Jesus so that all nations may know him to God's glory. That right there is the extremely brief summary. Um, but also know that our team has developed a, what we would call, what we've been calling a one-page narrative, a document, if you will, to flesh this out a little bit more. Once again, what's on this page, our vision is so much larger than what could be put to, to a page, but if you want a little bit more of an explanation of what we're talking about and what we're looking at, you can actually pick one of these up at the hub. Um, even today, they've got uh, these printed out. I'd encourage you to do that. I won't sit here and read this uh, to you as to insult your intelligence. I trust that you can do this on your own um, as you grab one. I also know that in the coming weeks, you're going to see some things throughout the hallways. We're looking to get banners and uh, all kinds of uh, different things that you can t- take home with you uh, to flesh this out a little bit more. Um, and, and know that the next three weeks, we're going to be preaching through a vision series is what I would call it, uh, as each of the next three weeks, I will preach on the biblical support for each of the three main verbs in our mission statement. Today, we'll briefly look at what it means to build followers of Jesus, and then next week to equip, and then the following week, the third week of March, to um, mobilize uh, there. So um, with that, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, Let's go ahead and turn to God's word. Um, Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 through 11. Please follow along uh, with me as I read. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believe, does the Lord assign to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, I am uh, like a skilled master builder. I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let's go to the word in prayer before we begin our time in his word. And Father, you know that our hearts and our minds are clouded by our sin. And so by your spirit, would you bring clarity to your word and illuminate yourself to us. Let us understand what you desire uh, in us, uh, what you desire us to know from your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, we've spent a lot of time in the last year talking about Corinth and the many problems within that church. And so I don't feel the need to uh, rehash the context completely. Um, But just briefly from verses 1 through 4, we do see one issue at hand in the church in particular. And that is that many of the Corinthians were immature in their faith. Right? And there's somewhat an irony in these opening verses. We know that the Corinthians claimed to have this supernatural spirituality above and beyond ordinary believers. And Paul comes in here in verse 1 of chapter 3 and tells them, I can't call you spiritual people because you're acting like people of the flesh. But Paul says, you look like babies. You're no different than a baby who can't consume anything other than milk. I can't even feed you anything other than milk because your ways and your mindset and your attitude, your attitudes are childish. And so Paul addresses them. He does address them as believers. He calls them brothers, which was a designation that he only used for other believers. So he, Paul is convinced that they're believers but then he addresses them as people of the flesh. And so to call them believers and then to address them as as people of the flesh, Paul is actually using an oxymoron here, right? Fleshly believer, a fleshly Christian is an oxymoron because believers who by nature are people of the spirit, which Paul actually explains in chapter two, you can go back and read the difference between somebody of the spirit and somebody of the flesh. Believers who are by nature people of the spirit can't be people of the flesh. Right, right? Paul, Paul draws attention to the fact that what they claim to be and how they are acting, what their mindsets are, are actually incompatible. You you can say that you're a believer all you want, but your actions and your mindsets, Paul says, look more like that of an unbeliever right now. You, You look more like an unbeliever who hasn't been touched by the Spirit, who hasn't been made alive in the Spirit, than an actual believer who is made alive. And so right here in this passage, one of two things are happening. Either they are not truly people of the Spirit, And Paul is actually mistaken in calling them brothers. Perhaps their status as people in the Spirit needs to be called into question. Or they are people of the Spirit, yet in their sinful nature have given themselves over to their flesh. And now they need to repent. Now they need to change because they are not people of the flesh. 
They are people of the Spirit. This is a call to repentance. And, and one of the ways that their immaturity displayed itself, according to verse 3 and 4, is that they had actually formed factions between themselves. They did not look at themselves as one body, but rather divided based on who led them. Paul uses himself and another ministry leader named Apollos as an example. And it seems as though the Corinthians were hitched more to a ministry leader than they were hitched to Christ. Right? Perhaps a specific uh, ministry leader had such a profound impact on their life. And so they devoutly followed them. And Paul found the Corinthians to have just this kind of unhealthy loyalty to certain men to the point that it was causing division and causing issues. That's the context of the passage. That's what Paul is addressing in these verses. And that is actually why Paul writes the, the next several verses that we're going to look at. However, what I would like to highlight for our own purposes this morning is, is that layered in to this correction of the Corinthians, it can actually be found a blueprint, a blueprint for one of the main purposes of the church, why we exist and what our purpose should be. It has the answer to why we at FAC would say we want to build followers of Jesus. When we say here that we want to build followers of Jesus, the explanation of of that here, uh, what that means is here in Paul's correction of the Corinthians. And oddly enough, the concept of, of building, to build believers, starts with another metaphor altogether to that of a field or a farmstead. What Paul's doing is he's explaining our role in all of this, in the building process, and, and, and our role in God's work by using this illustration of the field. What he's doing is he's putting the laborer in perspective. The, the Corinthians had elevated Paul. They had elevated Apollos, and Paul wants to say, time out, we need to put things into perspective here. And so he says, Paul and Apollos, uh, Apollos and I, we're, we're nothing more than just servants of the Lord, right? And, 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 and he himself is the one who has assigned us our tasks. I'm not the one calling the shots. I'm not the one deciding what I was to do, what Apollos is to do. The, the tasks came from God. He's the one doling out the assignments. And you know what? We're given different assignments. I'm the one that planted the seed and Apollos watered the seed. But at the end of the day, the plant didn't grow because of us. The, the, the plant grew because it was God who gave the growth. Paul's saying, I played such a very small part in this, but God was the one who brought growth. Sure, we played some small part in it, but, but God is the one that needs our attention. He is the one that makes this work. And you know what? He didn't need us, but by his grace, he chose to use us in this process, but he didn't need us to bring growth. Once again, Paul is putting the laborers in perspective in their proper place. Growth will not happen without the laborers, but the laborers cannot take any credit for the harvest because God is the one who takes credit for the harvest. He is the one who brings forth growth. And sure, from a human perspective, Apollos and Paul may look like mountains 
in the eyes of humans for their achievements. But when you observe those mountains from the moon, or you observe those mountains from the perspective of God's heavenly throne, they are nothing. You can't even see them. With these verses, Paul introduces this uncanny paradox that is absolutely essential to understand in ministry. The first part of the paradox is that God uses us as farmhands to grow people in spiritual maturity, to build the church. Consider the significance of that. That God, who does not need us, in his grace, chooses to use us as the very channel by which the vehicle, by which he brings about growth. That he could do it another way, but has decided in his infinite wisdom and infinite will and infinite goodness and holiness to use his creation as, as his utensils. That we are utensils in the hands of the Almighty. Our service and our work for God by his will and choosing is an indispensable part of God's working and activity in this world. And I guarantee that if we are faithful and obedient to God's calling on our lives, if we're able and willing, that he will bear more fruit through us than we even realize. There will be more of a harvest as a result of our work than our own eyes can even see because we have such a limited perspective. We will never see a full picture of the amount of growth that God bears and brings about through us, at least not in this life and maybe not even in the next. And and this is good for us. This is purposeful for us as if not to feed our pride. But here is the paradox that Paul communicates that while God will bear more fruit through our work than we could ever imagine, we are also way more, significant, way more insignificant than we even realize. We are not nearly as important as we've convinced ourselves that we are in this world. We are expendable because we are human beings under the Creator. So yes, we are called to plant and we are called to water. We are called to play a part. We are called to different assignments, each very significant in their own way. We have a responsibility to it, but then we commit our work to God's hands for growth. And he is the one that makes that happen. He is the one that brings about results, not us. You see, some people fall into the trap in ministry and in service that if I just try harder, or if I put more hours in, if I just, if I plant harder, if I water harder, if I have more oomph and vigor in my endeavor, if I'm just smarter, if I just have a better strategy, if I just have a better wit, if I just have a better vision, then there will be more growth. But the truth of the matter is that the crop will grow as God wills it. And Paul says here, it's not that I just need to try harder. It's not that I just need to will growth into existence. I just need to show up, play my part, my little part, and then trust that God will work. 
Over the years, I have found this experience to be quite liberating, right? Because it takes the pressure off. I am not responsible as a human, uh, as a mere man for, for the growth. God is. What I am responsible for is to show up and do my job. I am responsible to faithfully and obediently complete the task with, with excellence, right? To the best of my ability, because that's what brings glory to God. I'm, I've come to, to, to get up and do what God has assigned to me. Once again, this means that if I have been called to plant or to water, I do have a duty. I do have a responsibility to it. I do have an obligation to it. And God has promised that if I show up and do with excellence what God has called me to do, that he will bring growth. And so the Christian mindset is this. Can I get up in the morning, day after day, and do the job that God has assigned me to, knowing that through my work, there will be fruit. There will be growth. Even if I never get to see the full extent of such growth with my own two eyes. Is that good enough for me? Am I okay with the promise that God will bring results through my faithful and obedient work even if the results don't look how I desire or what I expect them to look like. You see, we make an idol out of our work. We make an idol out of our results in ministry. And we need to come with the understanding that God growing things on account of someone being faithful and obedient is enough. It's enough. When we come to that understanding of ministry, we have come with pure motives. Right? We no longer bear fruit so that I may be glorified, but to offer the little that I have which God has given me so that he would be glorified. And we will be rewarded, if you will, to that end. Verse 8 makes it very clear that we are not rewarded based on merit. We are not rewarded or paid based on results, but we are rewarded based on our faithfulness and our obedience. Paul writes it, he, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to what? To his success? To his fruit? To his results? No, according to his labor. The harvest workers will not be rewarded according to their success, but according to their work. The wage is given based on the obedient and faithful one who pursues the good works that God has prepared for them to do in advance. The wage is for the ones who raise their hands and say, here I am, Lord, send me, use me however you wish. I have but breadcrumbs to offer you. And even the breadcrumbs that I have in my possession, I can't even take credit for because you're the one that gave them to me. But I know that if I give them back to you, if I take these breadcrumbs and I give them back to you and you use them according to your will and your ways, they will become a feast. You, you will turn them into a feast. And Lord, whatever that feast looks like, whatever that harvest, uh, whatever harvest comes about, I will be satisfied. 
And I will be satisfied and joyful knowing that it brings you glory. And I will be satisfied not because I produced results, not because I produced fruit. No, Lord, I will be satisfied because you took somebody who was pitiful like me with with not much to offer and you have done great things. That is something worth giving you glory, Lord. And, And that is the perspective of the laborer. That is the metaphor of the field that Paul uses and it's closely related to the metaphor of the building. Right? He, he links the two in verse 9. I know we spent a lot of time on the metaphor in the field, but know that the metaphor of the field actually sets up the metaphor of the building. It gives flesh to what Paul means when he calls them a building. Right? What, what are we building? When, when we say here at FAC we want to build followers of Jesus, what are we talking about? Are we building a literal, physical plant? on a plot of land? Are we building structures? Are we building organizations? Are we building programs? Are we building ministries? No. We're building people. Specifically, we are building people in a corporate and collective sense. When we say that we want to build followers of Jesus, we are talking about the collective spiritual growth of the church. Because the church is collectively God's building, which is still under construction. That is, it is still becoming more Christ-like. And we here at FAC want to aid to that building process. Right? We, we, we want to help uh, play our part, whatever it is, in, in the building and seeing the church as a whole become more like Christ. Because here at FAC, we function with the biblical understanding that God intends for all believers to grow in spiritual maturity. That yes, he meets you where you are. He gives you his spirit free of charge. It is a grace move to give you his spirit, but then he does not intend for you to stay in the sinful state that you are in. He wants you to mature in your faith. We function with that biblical understanding and it is our hope that God uses our church in that growth process, that each of us as believers are called to participate in the building of his church. That's what he says. Paul speaks about how he's a master builder in verse 10, right? This would be like a on-site foreman, a managing supervisor of a building project. And he mentions that he has laid the foundation and now someone else is building upon it. And then he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. You see, Paul is under the assumption that others will come along, that that Paul's time here is limited, his work will be done, and then somebody else will come along and aid in the building process. He expects others to come along and build up the church. He understands that this is an ongoing project and that the work is to be picked up right where he left off. And where did Paul leave off? Well, he tells us where he left off. He left off at the foundation. And then he reminds us carefully in verse 11 what the foundation of the entire building is. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. Without the gospel, without Jesus, the building collapses because the building is reliant on the gospel on Jesus. The church actually ceases to be the church if Jesus is not the foundation. A group of people gathering together cannot call themselves the church unless Jesus Christ is its cornerstone. And it's important to note that not only is Christ our foundation, but Christ is our foundation as he reveals himself to us. 
Right? Because there are many people out there, and there are many groups of people that would call themselves a church who have some very different and strange ideas about who Jesus is and who he was. However, we do not get to decide what the foundation looks like. God himself is the one who determines the foundation and who Jesus is as he reveals it in his word. Which is why his word is the ultimate construction tool. Right, the church is built, the church grows as individuals come into contact and engage with the living, transforming word of God. And we're told that the pages, the word on these pages, that, that, that Jesus it, it are these words in the flesh, that every single word in this book is not misplaced and it points to Jesus as our foundation. Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, our foundation. Now, in our context right now, in this time and in this place, there is a word of warning here in this last verse when it comes to vision casting within a church. Right? Because it's very easy for the, in a vision casting process to feel a, a burden, right? To come up with something fresh and creative and inspiring. To, to come up with something really profound. Perhaps this morning uh, you were maybe even a little underwhelmed as I shared or as you continue to look, you have just this insatiable desire for something more profound and, and more creative. And I can tell you that as a pastor, I constantly feel the pressure to be more profound. Perhaps you hear this and you read this document and you look where you're going and you say, we've been talking about this for years and that's it. That's what you came up with. That's all, all that you've got. There is that pressure. However, under God's sovereignty, we are not under such pressure. Why? Because the gospel is sufficient enough in itself. Vision casting has become somewhat of a buzzword these days, and it often turns into an idol. A lot of people, whether they realize they're doing it or not, replace the gospel with their profound creative vision. But does not the gospel of Jesus Christ have enough wisdom or have enough depth or have enough wonder or have enough draw and compulsion in itself enough to build the church? Is the gospel not enough to the point that we need to add on to it with some grand, creative, profound vision? Of course not. The gospel is a firm foundation. Yet there is a church culture that exists that says, unless I come up with something original, something profound, something creative, then this thing won't work and we will not bear fruit, which is a grave error. And this is why I love what one author wrote on the matter when he said that defining the vision of a congregation is not an exercise in creativity, but rather it is an exercise in discernment. And I've looked at this entire process as an exercise of discernment, of going to the Lord and saying, Father, as Jesus is our foundation, what direction would you have us go as a church? You see, we've done hard work. We've done very productive work. I just want to make sure that we put our work in the proper perspective. And so we will cast this vision. And we will recognize it for what it is, but we will also recognize it for what it isn't. It is not the foundation of FAC, because churches are not built on vision. They are built 
on the gospel. This vision is not a foundation, but rather it's a gate. It's a gate that we will walk through as a church, which will help us concentrate our direction and efforts through a single avenue. It will help us discern what steps to take and what steps not to take. And we trust that through such steps, God will spiritually grow and build his church. Would you pray with me? And Father, we thank you for the reminder that Christ is the foundation. And I pray, Lord, as we do chart direction here at FAC, that it would honor you uh, and that our, our work would not be in vain. Lord, that, that would you give us a token of encouragement even as we get up today and labor? Father, we, we would ask, Father, that you would give us a, a taste of what you're doing here. And we do this to diligently walk in the path that you would have us walk. And we do believe that this is from you, Lord. And we thank you for the collective insight, Father. I thank you that this isn't um, even my vision, but FAC's vision, uh, what you would have for us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless us mightily. And it's in your holy name I pray. Amen. So it's quite fitting that um, we would share in communion on the day that we cast a vision for FAC. And at first glance, I was actually frustrated at the schedule of it because I wanted to have plenty of time to, 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 to discuss our new vision. Um, and then God graciously reminded me that no vision is legitimate if not built on the foundation of Christ which is what we have come to remember today as we gather around the communion table together, um, that his death and resurrection are the cornerstone of everything we are here and everything that we do. Paul actually writes later on in 1 Corinthians that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And so right now in this moment, we remember that we were separated from God because of our sin. Yet in his graciousness, Christ died for us so that we would be reconciled to God and enjoy everlasting life to the fullest in him. And that apart from Christ, this was not possible. We take communion together to remember just that. Please do know that you don't need to be a member or even a regular attender of FAC to participate with us. If you believe in Jesus, as your Lord and Savior you, and are walking in fellowship with him, I invite you to participate with us. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would politely ask that you refrain from um, taking the elements because this is not a mere formality uh, for us, but this is actually a serious activity for those who believe in Jesus. Um, if that is you, though, uh, let me encourage you to use this time wisely and consider what Christ has done for you on your behalf, even if you reject it. And consider maybe this morning putting your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time. Let's take a few moments just to reflect and remember together what Christ has done on our behalf.
On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he, uh, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me to take and eat. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Take and drink. Take and drink.